All right. So, as I was saying, he's gone south looking for yard sales, and uh, I think he'll find some down there. He said to let him know when the neon signs come back up here in the spring. So, get ready for five to six months of quarter backup quarterback play. <laughs> That's a joke. Don't don't call him begging him to come back. He'll be back soon. But uh, speaking of Pastor Rich, uh, in terms of something that actually happened, um, a few weeks ago, uh, he shared some verses in Ephesians chapter 4 with Justin, Chris, and myself. And that led to what I want to talk about today. So if you'll turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4, we can look at the verses together. And we'll just pray real quick before we start. Lord, I do just thank you for giving us time to gather together in your name this morning. I thank you for your word, and I pray that you would speak through it to each person here, and that you would speak through me this morning. Help me to preach accurately and clearly, and uh, that people would remember the things you want them to remember today. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So let's, let's read the verses together, uh, verses 11 through 16 of Ephesians chapter 4. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So every verse there could be broken down into like four sermons, I think. You know, there's a lot in there. But when we were talking about these verses uh, a few weeks ago, we were talking about how we, as people who are in the category of teachers in uh, one way or another, uh, here in the church, need to use the gifts that God has given us to, and I'll, I'll go here, prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. There we go. And that really made it quite difficult for me to say no when he asked me if I could teach today. See how he sets you up, you know? He gives you the verses that tell you what you ought to do, and then he asks you to do it. But, <laughs> but uh, when we were talking about it, what really jumped out at me was the word translated here as mature. Um, it's also translated as mature in the Lord or a perfect man. And we're talking about spiritual maturity, of course, and not whether you still like to make goofy faces, blow bubbles with a straw, or stay in your pajamas and watch cartoons until noon on Saturday morning, even though you're in your 40s. You know, that's not the kind of maturity we're talking about. The word in the original Greek is teleos, which is an adjective for which the Strong's Bible usages include brought to its end, finished, full-grown, adult, wanting nothing necessary to completement, completeness. And so this ties in with the Greek word 
teleo as well, which is a verb, and that's found elsewhere in the Bible. And that, that word is what it's used when Jesus said, it is finished on the cross, teleo. And it means to accomplish, finish, make perfect, to add what is lacking in order to render a thing full. And he said that before he died on the cross about his work that he had done there. Uh, also to bring to the end goal proposed. And there's one last definition that I have is the one that really made me think, and it's to make something what it ought to be. And that's what I want to talk about today, to make something what it ought to be. So again, in the context of what we were discussing at the time, the idea was that we are called to be teachers and leaders in order to help people grow in maturity and become what they ought to be here in the church. But each of us are still becoming what we ought to be, too. And I can pass along what God has shown me in his word and what he's done in my own life to other people. But the real work of people becoming what they ought to be has to be done by God. And that's good news. Who would you rather have doing the work? Me, yourself, or God? I know I'll pick God every time. (laughs) He knows what the finished product looks like. And he knows exactly the best way to bring that about. He's completely able to carry out that work because he's God. Now, I've been a believer and follower of Jesus Christ for over 13 years now. And when I look back at who I was before I gave my life to him, and even who I was in the first few years of being a believer, I can tell you and say without a doubt that I am more what I ought to be now than I was then. Hopefully each one of you can look at your own life and say the same, because otherwise you haven't been growing in the Lord, and that's a problem. It's certainly not because I've been able to do anything to improve myself, that I am more what I ought to be now than I was then. I'm completely incapable of doing that. It's because God has been working in my life, and I've been growing in him. He's using his word, the Holy Spirit, the circumstances and trials of this life that I've faced, and also other believers to make me more what I ought to be, some of whom are sitting here in this room, some of whom are in the back teaching kids, some of who are on vacation and have me covering for them. (laughs) God's using those people in my life to help me to become more what I ought to be, but he is the one doing the work. And there's nothing prideful in saying I'm more who I ought to be now than I was then. Because who gets the credit for that? It's not me. It's God. And so to recognize that he has done a work in me is only right to say that. And it's right for you to say that too. And I've seen that in people in this room's lives. I've watched you and seen what God is doing in your lives. And that's amazing. So you can say it too. I'm more who I ought to be now than I was then. But it's a process that's still going on. It's a process that takes our whole life. But God wants to continue that work. Anyone here want to remain infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming? That sound good? I don't want to be an infant. That's our default setting, by the way. 
Unless God does a work in us and we grow into someone more spiritually mature than we were as brand new believers, that's what we are. If we haven't grown, we're an infant. And an infant child of God is infinitely better than being not in the family at all, certainly. But we're not supposed to stay infants. If we don't want to remain infants, and we want to be who we ought to be, then we had better get on board with what God wants to do in our lives to bring us closer to maturity, completion, and perfection in him. So going back to those definitions, one for teleo was to bring to the end goal proposed. Would you say it's important that we know what the end goal proposed is? To know what the finished, accomplished, completed, mature product looks like? On the one hand, we should trust God that he certainly knows what that is, and, and we can leave that in his hands. But on the other hand, he has already answered that question for us. The answer is the same as the answer to many of the most important questions in our lives. It's also the favorite go-to answer for any child asked what they learned in Sunday school today. What did they learn about in Sunday school today, everybody? Jesus! Right. If your Sunday school teacher is worth anything, then you learned something about Jesus today in Sunday school. <laughs> so, good job. <laughs> Jesus, of course. He is our example. He is the goal proposed. We should become, be becoming more and more like Jesus as we walk through this life, more Christ-like. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, Paul writes, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we, who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. That ever-increasing glory comes from the Lord as he works by his Spirit to make us more like Jesus. John writes in 1 John chapter 2, verse 6, Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. That's a very short verse that means so much. To walk as Jesus did would be to walk how? Perfectly. We're not talking about physical walking either, obviously. We're talking about how we walk through this life. Jesus lived the only perfect life of any person ever. So if we're called to walk as Jesus did, we're called to walk perfectly. Charles Spurgeon said this about this verse. There is nothing which can so assist you to walk towards heaven with good speed as wearing the image of Jesus on your heart to rule all its motions. It is when, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you are enabled to walk with Jesus in his very footsteps that you are most happy and most known to be the children of God. Praise God that we're not left to do this on our own. We're not left to try and walk like Jesus on our own. That work of walking like Jesus would be much like the rich man entering heaven or a camel passing through the eye of a needle. With man, it is impossible. With God, all things are possible. Because the Holy Spirit enables us to do so, we can walk as Jesus did and so grow in our relationship with him and resemblance to him. Do we have any biblical examples of this process taking place? I just told you that I've seen it happening in your lives, people in this room. But who do we see in the Bible that this is happening to? You know, while... We were uh, on Wednesday nights. Recently, we wrapped up the book of Acts. We, we studied the whole book of Acts. It took us about a year, and, and it was really a, an awesome book to look at. While we were doing that, I was also studying 
in a, separately the Gospel of John before we started reading it in here. And what stood out to me as I was looking at both of those books kind of at the same time myself was the difference in the apostles before and after. Let's take Peter, for example, since he is one of the few inner circle apostles, if you want to call them that, who are singled out repeatedly and quoted the most. He's the one that I believe we see the greatest change in. In the Gospels, we see a man who had boldness, certainly. He doesn't lack for boldness. He had faith, but he was also a man who did not understand clearly the words of his Lord. And then he was a man who denied knowing the Lord three times. But Jesus began to make a difference in Peter's life immediately after he called him to put down his fisherman's nets and follow him. It was Peter who got out of the boat in Matthew chapter 14 when Jesus was walking on the water. Let's turn there. I have a few sections in Matthew so we can look there together. Matthew chapter 14 first. Verses 28 to 31 of Matthew chapter 14, we see, Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But he saw the wind. He was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? Jesus accurately spoke of Peter's faith. It was not no faith or he would not have gotten out of the boat at all. It was not great faith, or he would not have been afraid and began to sink. He had little faith. But what I think is easy to overlook is that the rest of the apostles in the boat didn't even have that much faith. He was the only one who thought it possible for him to go out on the water with Jesus. So his faith, as little as it was, was more than theirs in that situation. But this was the early stages of his walk with Jesus. But already he had been given faith. How about another well-known passage from Peter's greatest hits and another from his greatest failures? Verses 13 to 17 of Matthew chapter 16. It's two chapters ahead. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he said? Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my father in heaven. Peter stood out as the one who correctly recognized Jesus as the Messiah and son of God even as people all around him were quite confused about who exactly he was. But later in the same chapter, though not necessarily on the same day, we see that Jesus was telling his disciples that he must be killed and on the third day raised back to life. At which point, in verse 22, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Just a few verses ago, he was right on the money. 
And a few verses later, he couldn't be more wrong. There's a quick turnaround. Peter had really screwed up in several ways here. First and foremost, that he began to rebuke Jesus. That he told, thought that he knew better than Jesus what was the right thing that was going to happen here. And secondly, he told Jesus that something that was, he was planning to do that would be extremely difficult for him to go to the cross and die for our sins was not going to happen. Thank God that Jesus did not actually allow Jesus to stumble him, even though he called him a stumbling block. It didn't lead to Jesus avoiding the cross. If he did, our sin would not be paid for and we would all still be lost if he had listened to Peter in that situation. What seemed good to Peter to say would truly be the worst thing for all humanity in history. But though Jesus rebuked him in the sternest way possible, he said, get behind me, Satan. He did not say, get out of here. He did not say, I'm done with you. He was still working to make Peter who he ought to be. Peter had some excellent moments of faith and understanding, and then he had some moments where he just got it all wrong. The low point of Peter's life came when he denied knowing Jesus three times the night he was arrested. Earlier in the same evening, he had been willing to go down swinging as the only disciple with a sword against an angry mob and a whole troop of soldiers. One sword, one guy. Very brave, but also very wrong. Because Jesus told him he had to die and rise again. And yet he tried to get in the way of that happening. His brave, bravery was misdirected. It wasn't a good night for Peter at all. It was the low point of his life. But John recorded his restoration by Jesus in John chapter 21. So we can turn there real quick and see what Jesus had to say to Peter after all this took place. Starting in verse 15 of John chapter 21. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things and know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. I tell you the truth. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. So after that, we have the question by Peter about what about John? What about him? That's just more proof that Peter's a work in progress, that Jesus said all that to him, and then his first thought was, well, what about John? <laughs> but I think what's more important here is that Jesus was clearly not done with Peter. Jesus had work for him to do, and Jesus had work to do in him. He didn't say, Peter, you denied me three times. Why are you still here? Instead, he asked him to confirm three times that he really did love Jesus. Though he already knew it, Peter needed to say it. And then he gave him the commands to feed his lambs, take care of his sheep, feed his sheep, and lastly, follow him. There's hope in that for all of us when we sin. Jesus is not done with us, and he's not done working in us. And when Pastor Rich gets back, you can tell him we're just about done with the book of John, right? We just did 
good portion of chapter 21. One more thing about Peter. Let's turn to chapter 2 of Acts. Here's where you really see what a difference the Holy Spirit makes. This is immediately after the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples at Pentecost. In all those verses we looked at prior to this point, Peter was with Jesus, but he did not have the Holy Spirit. Now that he had received it, the boldness that he had displayed before, kind of haphazardly, being bold in different ways that were incorrect, is now focused by the Holy Spirit into powerful preaching to a crowd of people gathered in Jerusalem. We won't read the whole thing right now, but let's look at the end from verses 36 to 40 of chapter 2 of Acts. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them, and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted the message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. 3,000 people turned to Jesus. Peter sounds like a whole different person, doesn't he? He's still got the boldness, but now he's got the whole picture in his mind and in his heart of what he should be doing and what he should be telling these people. Throughout the rest of the book of Acts, we see Peter further and further along in his walk with the Lord, learning and growing and becoming more like Jesus. Eventually, he did indeed give his life as a martyr to glorify God. And according to historical sources, Peter was crucified but begged for the Romans to do so with him upside down on the cross because he did not count himself worthy to be crucified in the same manner as Jesus. Where he had once denied ever knowing Jesus out of fear, he went fearlessly to his death, refusing to deny his Lord ever again. God knew all the ways that Peter would sin and fail before he was ever born. He knew them before he called him to follow him and to be his apostle. And yet he chose him to do great things for God. He had a plan for who Peter was meant to be. And he did the work to make him just that. The apostle Paul is another example of God's work in a person's life to make them who they ought to be. We could spend hours just looking at his life. We won't do it, though. Don't worry. One of the first rules of filling in here is that you don't want to try and break the record for longest message. I'll leave that to others. But to sum up Paul's life very quickly, he was a legalistic persecutor of the early church who zealously hunted Christians down to throw them in jail or have them put to death as blasphemers. After encountering Jesus on the road to Damascus and finding out that everything he had thought he was doing for God was actually against God, his whole life changed and he spent the rest of it tirelessly serving the Lord. And preaching the gospel. He too gave his life as a martyr for Jesus, but not until he had traveled throughout the ancient world, spreading the good news to people wherever he went, and not before writing a substantial portion of the New Testament in the form of his letters. He wrote in Philippians chapter 3, verses 10 to 16, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this, or have already been made perfect, 
but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. That word that Paul uses there, mature, is the same word that we talked about at the beginning, teleos, in Ephesians. Paul was saying that even those who have achieved some degree of being who we ought to be, of being somewhat mature in our faith, still should take the same view he did, not to be satisfied with that, but to keep pressing on to grow more in Jesus, to be more who we ought to be, to know him more completely. To us, it might even seem that Paul became who he was meant to be almost instantaneously when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. The change in him was so quick and so drastic that it seemed that Paul went from being completely the wrong person he was meant to be to being completely whole. But that's not the case, and he says so himself, that he is pressing onward to become more and more who he ought to be, even as he writes these letters, even as he served the Lord tirelessly. He wasn't done yet. He wasn't finished growing. He said he still had a long ways to go. He hadn't attained it yet. But how do we press on in this way? Doesn't that contradict what I said earlier, that this is a work that God has to do in us, not our own work, if we're the ones pressing on? If I said, you have to make yourself more like Jesus, that would be a contradiction, and that would be impossible. We can't make ourselves more like Jesus. But our pressing on to know him better and grow in him is not our own work. God has to do that part. He does the work, but we cooperate with what he's doing in our lives. We also have the ability to resist what he wants to do, because God doesn't force us to grow in him. Who here has seen the show Fixer Upper? Very popular, I understand. Or how about any buy a house and fix it up show? Home improvement shows, all the rage. I ask this question because we are all very much fixer-uppers at various stages in the process of being fixed up by God. What would happen on one of those shows if the people who were going to get the house in the end showed up on the construction site and interrupted Chip while he was having a good old time knocking all the walls out for the open concept that they had planned and said, no, no, I don't know. Does that crusty old wall really have to go in the middle of the house? I kind of like it there, even though it's not part of the plan. There are shows where that happens. I, I don't think I've seen it on that particular show, but shows where the, the perspective homeowners or the people who want their house improved like insert themselves into the situation and say oh no 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 don't do that I, I want to keep that it's not part of the plan but they, they want to keep it anyway in those cases everything gets delayed while the people have to be convinced that the plan to knock down that old wall is the best plan and then finally do it in the end in this way we can resist what God is trying to do in our lives as if we know better than he does what needs to go and what needs to be put into our life. By digging our heels in and refusing to listen to what God is trying to say to us, and refusing to change when God says we need to, we can slow down the work he wants to do in our lives. We can stagnate our growth. 
we can keep watching or listening to things that we know aren't good for us or putting ourselves in situations where we're tempted again and again to sin when we should just get out of there. Back in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 29 to 32 says, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. If we're grieving the Holy Spirit by doing some of these things that Paul says here to get rid of, then we're getting in the way of the work God wants to do in our life by his Holy Spirit. When we do do what we ought to do, we're helping. We're not doing the work ourselves, but we're cooperating with the work God wants to do. When we don't do what we ought to do, we bring the work to a halt even. These things that Paul lists need to get pulled out of our lives like a wall in a house that needs to go. Perhaps so that we can put up a new wall with some shiplap on it. Right? There we go. <laughs> if we're able to slow down the work, we can also cooperate with what God is doing by being quick to listen and obey. When the experts on those shows call the new homeowners up to tell them some bad news, like the foundation is cracked and needs repair, there are termites in the support beams and the whole place could come down on your heads, or your heating system is going to catch on fire the first time you turn it on, so we need to replace it. I have never heard the folks on the other end of the line say, yeah, that sounds pretty bad, but I, I think we can live with it. Why don't we just leave it that way? No, they listen to the experts, and no matter how much damage it does to the budget, they go ahead and they do what is necessary to make that house right. In the same way, God wants us to be on board with what he's doing and not ignore the problems we have in our lives. We're not going to grow if we don't let him take out the things that don't belong there and put in the things that do. It can be hard to understand our role in this process since we're so helpless to actually do anything ourselves, and yet we have a responsibility to cooperate, cooperate with what God's doing in our lives. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 13, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his purpose. The New Testament is filled with instructions from God for our lives. If God wanted to just instantaneously transform us into finished projects, he could. But he has chosen instead to have us grow in him over time, giving us choices to make about how much do we want to grow? How much do we want to let him change us into being more like Jesus? As we walk with him by faith, by obeying his instructions and following him in this life, we are involved in his work in us. I mentioned Fixer Upper before, since it's probably the most popular of those shows, but there are some other shows where the new homeowners actually participate in the work, right? It's under careful instruction from the expert builders, and often they just let the folks swing a sledgehammer around on demolition day because how much damage could they, could they do when they're supposed to be doing damage. But still, the experts are waiting there near them to tell them, don't swing it that way or it's going to bounce back and hit you in the face. I'd say that we're more like this. We're very unskilled. 
We have very little we can accomplish our, ourselves, none at all, really. But we listen to the expert, and that's God, and we do what he tells us to do. By obeying him as he instructs us by his word and his Holy Spirit. A big part of that is knowing the instructions, which is why being in his word and in prayer is so important. That's where we find out what we need to do and how we need to do it. If we don't look at the instructions more than once a week, then we can really mess up the project, can't we? We're not able to completely ruin the project, though, no matter what we do. Once the work is started in us, God is going to finish it one way or another. Philippians 1.6 tells us, Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. We can be confident as well. God is faithful, so very faithful. He never fails to keep his promises. And he has promised this to us. The work won't be fully complete until we receive our glorified bodies in heaven and we see him face to face. But while we wait for that day, do we want to remain infant believers who are of little use as servants to the Lord here on earth? If that's what we do, then as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 15, he himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. Those believers who resist the work God wants to do in their lives, dig their heels in and refuse to change, will rob themselves of the joy of becoming more like Jesus and of being used to serve him in this life. But those who cooperate with God and allow him to do that work, they will have joy and peace, and even rewards in heaven waiting for them when we get there, as well as the words, I want very much to hear from Jesus when I get there. Well done, good and faithful servant. We'll also have more opportunities to help others know Jesus better, both our fellow believers and lost people who don't know the Lord at all. As we are growing to be more like Jesus, other, other people will see the difference in us. And there's one more thing I want to talk about before we close, and that is the desperate state that we are all in before we ask God to begin this project in our lives. The state you're in now if you haven't received Jesus as your Savior before we surrender our lives to Jesus and are born again, we are not just a fixer-upper. We're a condemned building, destined for destruction. Even if we look okay on the outside, we're like a building full of mold with rotted-out beams about to collapse. We're like the buildings that Larry and Carlos went into, only worse. There's no hope for us. Houses, these are houses that even the best builders would look at and say, no not worth the effort. And yet God does want to take on that project and put in the effort. Not only that, he isn't looking for a bargain to buy us. He buys condemned buildings with his son's blood. That's a pretty astronomical price to pay for something so worthless to everyone else. So the question is, if you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, Will you let him save you from destruction? If you want him to begin a good work in you today, starting with the immediate work of saving you and giving you eternal life, then I want to give you an opportunity to do that as we close in prayer. But let's pray now. Lord, we do just thank you for the work you're doing in our lives. Those of us who have put our trust in you, you're making us more like you. You're making us more who we ought to be. We pray that you would help us not to get in the way of the work, but to cooperate with you fully. And that we would not reach a point where we're satisfied with ourselves the way we are and stop growing. You know us better than we know ourselves, and you know what's best for us. 
So we put our trust in you to carry out the work. Use us to encourage others to grow in you as well. I also want for anyone here or anyone listening later who doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior to take this chance to put their trust in you. If that's you, pray along with me. Lord Jesus, I know that I am a sinner in need of a Savior. I believe that you are the Son of God, and I believe in what you did when you paid for my sin on the cross and then rose again. I give my life to you now and ask you to do a good work in me, to start the work of fixing me up and making me more like Jesus. I pray that you would help me to grow in you until I see you face to face in heaven. Amen. You just asked Jesus to be your savior, then you were no longer a condemned building. You're a fixer-upper like the rest of us. Thanks, everybody, for listening today. Um, given that it'll be getting dark in about an hour, I'm going to let you all go. There's donuts to do, too, as well. So <laughs> thanks again.